Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight. Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather together electronically every week uh, to have conversations and to listen in on conversations with some of my favorite thinkers and leaders and people who can help us to examine what's going on in the world around us. And uh, today we're going to be talking, looking at signposts in a strange land, as we always do, in the area of institutions. Uh, Some of you who get Uh, my newsletter know that we talked a little bit about uh, what I call the parks and rec rule of public meetings uh, because of the clip that went around taking uh, people at city council meetings and boards of supervisors meetings who were screaming and saying crazy things about masks and and whatever. And they put it uh, alongside clips from parks and rec because the joke was the entire world has become Uh, the sitcom Parks and Recreation. And what we talked about in the newsletter is it's always uh, been that way, largely because uh, the people who show up at city council meetings or any sort of open mic forum uh, tend to be the people who care the most about what's going on. And sometimes those are people who aren't as calm or reasonable as as maybe even most people in their cities or in their towns. So there's, there's something that goes on with institutions that can skew them. And of course, that's just the least uh, of the issues that we're dealing in terms of institutions. That's one of the reasons why I was really excited to have Yuval Levin on the program today, who is the author of a really, really helpful book called A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Uh, Yuval is the director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's the editor of the journal National Affairs, and he has served in a variety of different roles over the years, including in domestic policy in the George W. Bush uh, administration. Yuval, thanks for taking time to be here today. Thanks very much for having me. You know, I was thinking uh, as I was rereading your book uh, last night, about a, a friend of mine who serves in ministry in a in a major metropolitan area uh, in the country was telling me that he had a defense attorney in his church who said that 20 years ago, if, if he had been representing somebody who was a, a member of the clergy, he would want the jury to know that, first of all, this is a, this is a clergy person. 
Now he wants to make sure that that does not come out or that if it does, it comes out uh, in the most muted way possible because it would increase the likelihood of his client being convicted because of the suspicion toward churches and, and of course, beyond that, uh, institutions. And that's one of the things that you're talking about in this book is we seem to be in a time where people are generally skeptical of institutions with almost no exceptions. Um, yeah, why? It, you know, it's 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 funny. I think you're absolutely right. And and the the attorney representing a corporate CEO or a member of Congress uh, would would be in very much the same position. Where hmm. generation ago they would have wanted to put that first and foremost, but now uh, it's almost a mark of shame. One way to think about that is that we've lost confidence in our institutions, and you can see that in public opinion surveys, and uh, it's almost a cliche by now that Americans have been losing trust in institutions. But I think it is really worth asking what we mean by that and what it is to trust an institution. Uh, you know, wh- One way to think about it is just as a matter of competence, are institutions functional? Are they doing their jobs? And there are always problems on that front. But it seems to me that when we think about trust these days – what we're really talking about is a sense that our institutions are not serving us and not serving their roles. And that the, a lot of the people at the top of our institutions think of the positions they have more as platforms for themselves than as molds of their character and behavior that impose certain responsibilities on them. So that you see a lot of performance art. You see a lot of people who use important positions as ways of playing a prominent role in the theater of our politics or of our culture wars. And institutions that run that way and that understand themselves that way just become a lot harder to trust. We see that in our politics where it certainly seems like the president and many members of Congress just understand themselves as commentators or performers more than as insiders. You see it in the academy. You see it in a lot of the professions and in the media People are trying to build their own brand rather than to work with the accumulated capital of an institution in a way that abides by some institutional ideal of integrity. And I think as a result, that makes them very hard to trust. And we find in a moment like the kind of public health challenge that we're living through now that we need trustworthy institutions. We need reliable expertise. And when we don't have it, just to say that we need to rid ourselves of these institutions is not enough. We need to do better by rebuilding them in the forms they need to take to allow our society to thrive. But isn't it true that a a great deal of that uh, is is not so much that people are subverting the institutions with the performative nature of, of their lives as much as it is that the institutions have failed to do what they promised to do, mm-hmm. yeah. which is to, to do what you're just talking about, shape and form character and, and provide uh, trustworthy boundaries. Uh, and, and again, there are a few exceptions, but there aren't a lot. I mean, as we're here right now, we're dealing with uh, distrust toward the banks for obvious reasons after the 2008-2009 crisis. There's uh, mistrust toward clergy that who could who could blame that after the sort of sexual abuse crises that we have seen across denominations D- don't you think that there's a that part of this or maybe the the biggest part of this is the failure of the institutions themselves absolutely and and you know it's a certain kind of failure it's a failure to present themselves as fundamentally formative as making demands on the people inside them 
rather than just offering a platform for those people. It's useful to think about the exceptions, because when you look at the public opinion data on trust in institutions, the most striking exception is the U.S. military, which is actually more trusted today than it was 50 years ago. And I I think a key reason for that, it's not just that the military is good at protecting the country, which it is, but it's that the military presents itself to our society as a formative institution. It says to be a part of this is to be a particular kind of human being with a distinct idea of integrity, of honor, of duty, and responsibility to country. And, you know, people enter the military and the expectation is they're going to come out different and better. When somebody tells you that they went to Harvard, maybe you would think, well, that could be a smart person, right? But not because they went to Harvard, but because they got in. Someone tells you they went to the Naval Academy, you probably think this is a serious person. And precisely because they did go to the Naval Academy and go through the Navy, that's an institution that we look at and say, that forms men and women to be better than they were. And that's what a lot of our institutions ought to be, but what too few of them understand themselves to be at this point. Well, and there's uh, there's an identity forming uh, nature. I, I think all the time about my brother, uh, who's a Marine, uh, who had not been in active duty for a long time. And I made the mistake of saying to someone, my brother was a Marine uh-huh. in the past tense. <laughs> and <laughs> it was the most insulting thing that I could have said. And he quickly corrected me to say, I, there is no past tense Marine. I am a Marine. There's not many institutions that can do that. Absolutely. And that, that shows that the people within the institution take it seriously, that it, it matters to them how it's understood, how their relationship to it is understood. And, and what that means is that in a moment of, of crisis or pressure, that person is going to think about what they ought to do through their institutional role. They're going to say, given my role here, how should I behave? And that's what we all should do, not just as a Marine, but as a parent, as a pastor or a congregant, as a member of Congress, as a teacher. What should I do in this situation? I I think a lot of the problem we face now in our public life might be summed up as failing to ask that question when we should ask it. And a lot of the people that most drive us crazy in America are people who just don't seem to ask that question when they obviously should, while the people who we respect are people who clearly do. Uh, understand their life experience through the lens of the responsibility they have uh, and the institutions they're part of. You know, as you as you say this, it makes me think of the way that I think we've seen in American history uh, functioning institutions uh, being the the primary way to deal with malfunctioning institutions. So I think, uh, as a Mississippian, uh, looking back and seeing those few people who few white Mississippians who would stand against Jim Crow in the 50s, 60s, uh, early 70s. There are not many of them, but every one of them, uh, you could trace it back in almost every case to the United States military. And people who were saying, I uh, was formed to have a different way of looking at uh, racial questions by my time in the Air Force in World War II or my time in the Navy uh, in, in Korea or what have you. Is there, don't you think there's a role for, uh, in a world of collapsing institutions, for the few well-functioning ones to actually set the standard? Absolutely. I think that connects to a couple of very important points. One is that part of what functional institutions do for us, from family and community to all the way to the national government and beyond, is that they form us. Institutions form the people in them. That's what we need from them. 
Human beings don't start out ready to handle the enormous amount of freedom and responsibility we have in this society. We need that formation, and institutions are there to provide that. But I, I would also say that it's important to see that the solution, as you say, to failures of institutions, the solutions need to come through functional institutions. There's an, there's an inclination, a kind of temptation now in a populist moment in our culture to say what we need is just to rid ourselves of these institutions. We need to burn them down so that we can have direct, authentic connection to uh, one another. But the fact is, we do need functional institutions. We can't do without them. And it's especially the people who are most in need and least privileged in our society who need functional institutions in order to be able to protect themselves and to flourish. And so oftentimes we think of our institutions as serving the powerful as sustaining the status quo. That's the charge against them in a populist moment. And it's very often true. But it's important to see that it's precisely people without power who need these institutions to function and be responsible and reliable so that when they're broken, we have to heal them. We have to fix them. We can't just tear them down. That's not enough. How can that be done when I'm thinking, of course, of uh, the institution that I'm the most related to other than the family, the church, uh, one of the big issues when it comes to, uh, I mean, we're talking about the military. One of the reasons that the military is able to shape and form people is because when one goes into the military, you're there. <laughs> and, and there's a there's a, an immense amount of time uh, th- that's involved just in terms of setting of daily life. And that, that was to a lesser degree, but in a real way, nonetheless, that was true of the weekly patterns of houses of worship in American life in a way that just is not right now. Uh, when you when you look at, uh, when I look at some of the things that are pulling people away from uh, active church life, sometimes it's individualism and secularization, but a lot of times it's other institutions such as weekend sports leagues and, and things like this. How can one institution actually have the time in in this sort of marketplace of American life right now? Yeah, it's an excellent question and a very important question because I, I, I think it's absolutely true that for that kind of formation to happen, we need to understand ourselves through that institution. And that requires that we see ourselves in it all the time and that we when we imagine ourselves, we imagine ourselves in the context of it. The first and foremost of the of the formative institutions of our society is the family, and the reason for that is that it's where we live our life, ideally, right? But in modern life, our experience is so fragmented that even in the family, we don't spend enough time. And as you say, it's especially true uh, of our religious institutions, which used to take up so much more of our time and identity uh, than they tend to now. In my tradition, in the Jewish tradition, uh, we try to begin each day in a group, a group of at least 10 people praying together uh, every day, including weekdays. And, you know, that used to be the defining characteristic feature of a Jewish community. It's now extremely difficult to get 10 people together in the morning because there are just a lot of other demands on everybody's time. And it feels like those are also responsibilities. And often, as you say, they're responsibilities to institutions But I think that forces us to prioritize, to think which is really the formative uh, set of institutions in my life. For everyone, that should begin with family. But beyond that, they need to be somehow local, communal, soul-forming institutions. And for that to happen, we first of all need to understand the nature of the problem we face. And we need to see that the absence of these kinds of institutions in our lives 
is part of that problem. You know, this is the challenge with institutional reform in general, is when you start to look at what's required, the first thing is we need to see the problem and understand it in these terms. And people within our institutions need to recognize that we need to change first before the institution can change. It's part of why I think it's, it, it can be useful to to describe the problem like this in a book. It's part of why it's useful to have conversations about it, because it's not the natural way for us to think about what's wrong in our country. When we imagine our country, even when we think about the social problems it faces, we tend to imagine it as this big open space filled with individuals, and maybe they're, tr- they're having trouble connecting with each other. So we talk about building bridges, uh, we, we talk about holding hands, we talk about breaking down walls. These are important things. But ultimately, our country, if it's an open space, it's not so much a space filled with individuals as a space filled with institutions, structures of social life that hold us together. And they tend to be invisible to us so that the first step is to see that we depend on them, that we need them, and then to think about how we can help to strengthen them so that they can strengthen us. Someone sent me a post on Twitter, a tweet of uh, someone who had been off of social media for a while. And then she came back on and she said, this is what happened. And she she posted a tweet that said, if I were an x-ray technician, after I took the first x-ray, I'd say, okay, now let's do a goofy one. And I think people would laugh and have a good time. Now, obviously, she's making a joke of sort of the old Jack Handy deep thoughts uh, type. But then she posted the responses uh, that she got. You're wanting to expose people to extra radiation for laughs? That radiation bill uh, would not be a good time. Uh, Or you call me a technician. As a technologist, I am offended. The word is technologist. Someone else, why is radiation exposure funny? This is heartbreaking. And I, I had to laugh because... I have seen that happen so many oh, times yeah. in terms of <laughs> social media and just dealing with people in uh, churches and in families. One of, it, it comes up all the time, one of the most stressful things in people's lives right now, uh, in their marriages, in their parenting, in their church lives. Uh, I have pastors who are ready to quit because of social media. Uh, what can be done uh, when we're in this sort of really toxic social media ecosystem? It's an enormous problem. And I think there is really a way in which social media drives some of the process that we've been talking about, the process by which people stop thinking of themselves as defined by obligations and responsibilities to one another, and instead come to see themselves as performers standing on a stage. Social media has a tendency to turn us all into a kind of mini celebrities with our own little circle of followers and we become our own paparazzi, right? We hound ourselves for photographs and destroy our personal lives in the process and always find ourselves thinking, what's this going to look like if I took a photo and posted it? How would this look to uh, people observing it? It's a very strange way to live your life. And it also turns out to expose you to an enormous amount of destructive peer pressure. In a sense, social media can seem like a mode of expression, like it lets you be yourself. But what it actually does is subject you to constant peer pressure uh, and of the most simple-minded sort and makes it very, very difficult for people to really engage with each other. There are certainly ways that social media can be constructive as a supplement to our social lives, as an add-on. But when it becomes a substitute for our social lives, which for a lot of Americans, especially younger Americans, it is doing, it makes it impossible for us to really live as social beings, to really understand ourselves as connected to a discrete group of other people 
by relations of obligations and commitment. And it's essential that people be able to pull back from that, to think about the connections we have that are genuinely interpersonal uh, and, and face-to-face connections, and to find ways to make the most of what social media can offer, but, but without diving in so deep that it changes the way you think about other people and interact with the world around you. I think Twitter in particular, just as a medium, the logic of it is so bad for our social interaction. It undermines all social confidence. It undermines expertise. It undermines any claim to authority. It makes it very difficult to interact in any but the worst possible ways. Um, And ultimately, I think there's frankly an argument for just staying out of it and trying to build social connection personally before... Uh, you subject yourself to, uh, to to the world of social media. Well, and you mention in the book that uh, one of the ways that people signal that they're part of the crowd, or the main way that people signal they're part of the crowd in, in a social media ecosystem is by saying, I hate your guts. Yeah, that's right. And, and it, it gets us to a place where, in our politics at least, we are much, much clearer on what we are against than what we're for. And where basically each of our parties thinks the other party is the country's biggest problem, rather than some distinct, discrete, concrete, practical problem facing the country, and we disagree about how to solve it, we've come to think of of one another as the problem. And that means that there's no path to compromise, there's no path to bargaining our way to solutions, because it means that giving ground to the other party is worse than anything we can imagine in our political life. And that means there's no bargaining to be had. There's nothing to be gained. All we want is for the other side to lose. And that's very much the logic of interaction on social media, and it's increasingly the logic of interaction in the actual real-world political life of our society. I think in a lot of ways it's an argument for trying to disconnect from the kind of culture war approach to politics and think about our relationship to the political from the bottom up, starting from the local where there are practical challenges to be addressed, and where in a lot of ways, local government, even state government, still works pretty well in America and allows us to be represented and allows us to uh, come to accommodations and agreements with one another. We need to see that as the model for politics and ultimately work toward a national politics that looks more like that, rather than understand everything through the lens of one big culture war that makes it impossible for us to deal with each other as neighbors. Do you think that's possible in a time like this where people who attempt to do that, whether they're on the right, left, center, wherever they are, uh, are going to immediately be accused of being sellouts by the people in their their tribe? You know, my my hopefulness in this regard is actually rooted in my pessimism. Um, I think that it's possible because I think people are very dissatisfied with the status quo, and that dissatisfaction should not be underestimated. If you ask Americans how things are going in our national life now, the answers would be pretty negative. And that means that no one really just wants to keep doing what we're doing. Now, getting from there toward framing a set of solutions that looks like opening up a space for some mutual accommodation and a politics that's a little bit more about solving practical problems, that's a long way to go. We're far from it. But I think we can get there by beginning to define the problems this way so that we at least can see what we're missing a little more at least can see that a, a politics of fighting to the death is not the norm and need not be the only way that we can think about how to interact with one another. So grasping that something is wrong and that that something looks like a combination of institutional failure and a failure of political culture is, I think, a beginning 
that might point the way toward uh, making it more realistic that we could open up that sort of space. As you and I are talking right now, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, well, I say middle. Who knows where we are in this? I, I hope that maybe somebody is listening to this uh, a year from now and and is saying, oh, I'm trying to remember those days because they're so far behind me. I hope they're not immediately recognizing uh, the situation we're in. And obviously, people have been in most of the country away from their churches for months, away from their bowling leagues or whatever uh, institutions they're part of uh, for a long time. Do you think that this time of pandemic is going to end up further destabilizing institutional life, or might it uh, might it be a, a force for good in that sense? It's very hard to say, in part because, as you say, we are in the midst of it. But I also think that, on the one hand, times of national mobilization, and this is one, can bring society together, can help us to overcome some of our differences in the service of, of meeting a, a greater need. But the particular form of mobilization that we're engaged in in response to an epidemic is really isolation. What's required of us is to separate from one another, to separate from the institutions that bring us together. Um, and that certainly can weaken our attachment to those institutions and get us into habits that are even more the habits of loners uh, than what we were seeing in our society before. And so the risk there is very real. I, my, my hope is that once we are able again to reconnect with one another, one of the things that will really strike us is how enormously important and valuable basic human connection is. The simple connection of being able to shake someone's hand when you meet them, of sharing an experience, of standing next to a stranger, uh, sitting next to a stranger in the ballpark and exchanging a high five when the team does well. This kind of thing that's just so much part of the, of the simplest facets of human experience that we've been denied now and are hungering for. And by appreciating that a little better, we could gain a better sense of what it is to think of a fellow human being as a neighbor before we ask ourselves what side of the political wars of our society that person is on. I think it's imaginable that, that, that this takes us there. But unfortunately, our response to the epidemic has not been at all devoid of the kind of partisanship that has stricken our politics in recent decades. We've, we've politicized the response in a way that's made it very difficult uh, to react to changing circumstances and to changing knowledge. There's a, there's a partisan view on whether you should wear a mask and what kind of drugs work. And that's a dysfunction. That's, an, that's a, a, a symptom of a larger sociopolitical dysfunction that is the problem that we're describing here and trying to think about how to address. And so whenever this is over, I think we're still going to confront that problem and we're still going to need to deal with it by basically changing how we think about one another and coming again to understand our neighbors uh, as belonging to the same community that we ourselves are part of. Well, I'm Christian, you're Jewish, and and one of the things in the scriptures that we hold in common that is almost omnipresent is the tension between the prophetic and the priestly. Uh, the the institutions are are built and are meant to function, uh, but left on their own, uh, those those often devolve into injustice and and all sorts of problems. And the the prophetic has to be uh, brought up. Elijah has to speak to Ahab and to and to the priests and so forth. And that's that's a tension and that's a balance. How does one know? I mean, when we're talking about institutions in the abstract, we can talk about institutions as being good. And yet there are often times where I'm talking to someone 
who's part of a really toxic uh, sort of institution that I have to say, you're, you're not going to be able to reform this system. The system is instead simply destroying you. And so how does somebody know when it's time to give up on a particular institution and, and move towards something new? I think it's a, it's a great question, and, and balance is just the way to think about it, because as you say, there are certainly ways in which institutions can become not only overbearing, but corrupt, um, and really can stand in the way of our achieving what it is that they are meant to help us do, rather than enable it. And there are also ways in which that corruption has to be answered by a certain kind of authentic witness that isn't institutional. You think of uh, uh, as you say, of priests and prophets, but even of priests and kings and of, of Nathan putting David in his place, there are times when it is necessary for an outsider with some authority to step in and say, this is corrupt and broken. I think the question is for us as individuals and as a society, in, in what way are we unbalanced? There are times when our society is too rigid and overly institutionalized, and what's required is to break out of the, those kinds of cages of conformity. You can see that in the culture of the United States after the Second World War, where in all kinds of different ways, there was a sense that things had become too rigidified, too conformist, and that we needed ways out of that. I think that now we're in a different kind of moment where the individualism that came out of that moment 70 years ago or so, and that has been building in our society ever since, has reached a point where now our institutions are, generally speaking, too weak and not too strong. It's not true for everybody. It's not true in everyone's experience. But as a general matter, what we need to remind ourselves of is the value that institutions can offer us. But that certainly doesn't mean that there are not today corrupt institutions that need to be replaced, that need to be rebuilt from scratch or abandoned and replaced. And to believe in institutionalism is not just to say that we've got to hang on to what we have, it's often to say that we need to build new structures to deal with new problems. And there are certain kinds of social challenges that require us to start fresh. And there are certain kinds of institutional corruptions that make it impossible to revitalize what is broken and that require us to head off and start, start anew uh, and build an, a, a, a new, fresh way to thrive. This is Yuval Levin, and his book is A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. Yuval, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of uh, Signposts. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And it helps us if you leave a review. It helps other people to find uh, the program. Also, if you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap the cover art and you'll find show notes, resources, way to find other things that our guest Yuval Levin has written and way to get his uh, book. And until next time, this is Signpost and this is Russell Moore. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.